The Last Word with Matt Cooper. We Need to Talk is the name of the book by Dr Tony Holohan, the former Chief Medical Officer for a period was supposed to be the best known person in the country during COVID. How are you? I'm good, thanks Matt. Thanks for having me. I see today that the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, was in updating the Cabinet in relation to the potential for significant levels of community transmission and co-circulation of COVID-19 and flu in the coming months. Do you miss being the person responsible for advising the government and all of that type of thing? Well, it was a difficult time for all of us uh, and it was a difficult and challenging job. A job I've often said was a privilege to hold. Uh, I think the position gives you a great opportunity to influence things that matter a great deal to people in their everyday lives. And I'm not just talking about COVID. I came from a background as a general practitioner uh, and then went back into public health training. And as a clinician, you have great and tangible contact with patients. You see a patient, perhaps you do something, perhaps a prescription, patients feel better. You don't have the same tangibility, but you do have an ability to influence things that matter to a great and large number of people. And I've always seen that as a privilege and working in the Department of Health as a privilege and had the opportunity to work with Stephen Donnelly. I think he was the seventh uh, Minister for Health that I worked with over my time uh, in the Department of Health. And um, I know he and all other Ministers for Health have a very difficult job sometimes underappreciated by people just how difficult it is. I found myself by by pure chance in his company this afternoon where he was speaking at a cancer conference, talking about the potential future collaboration across the island and how we make cancer research an embedded part of what we do in terms of cancer. So uh, it's a very varied agenda, challenging agenda, but I really enjoyed it when I did it. Do you miss it? But, but I, I don't miss it. I, I, the issues that I'm... In, that I was passionate about and I'm still passionate about, I want to continue to work on in the future, but in different ways. I have an opportunity now, I'm doing some work with the WHO, I'm doing some work with UCD, I'm on the board of the Hospice Foundation, and I get an opportunity in each of these to deal with the things that I dealt with it, while, I was, while I was in the position of Chief Medical Officer. But I'm in a different position, and I won't be trying to do the job from a new position. I'd okay. like to, to pursue new opportunities, whether those are in teaching and research uh, and, and, and so on. But I think this is relevant to ask you that how well prepared do you think we are to deal with the upcoming autumn and winter based on what you know of what we did in the last few years? Well, the one thing I never relished or liked when I was in the position was hurlers in the ditch, if I'm honest with you. And I'm not going to become a hurler on the ditch in terms of how things are happening. That's a very difficult job. There's a very good new chief medical officer in Breda Smith. She's got a good team. There's a very good team of people in the HPSC. The minister and others, they've got, as I say, a, a significant and challenging job. And what they don't need is me commenting from the sideline. I appreciate just how difficult that job is uh, and the preparations that have to be put in place to try to ensure that people are adequately protected over the Christmas okay. or over the, over the winter time. They are significant. Uh, and I, I, and I, I know, because I know what will be happening in the Department of Health, in the HSE right now, because I've been there. They'll be working very, very hard on that. But did we learn enough from the experience of COVID, particularly given that we haven't had any formal inquiry or review since? If there's going to, well, there has in fact been a lessons learned exercise, something that I had the privilege of initiating. Professor Hugh Brady, who used to be the professor of, or sorry, the president of University College Dublin, led an international panel of very expert people over a six month period and put together a series of recommendations. They were presented to the minister um, just before I left the, the role. A very, very good piece of work that was published, in fact, just earlier this month. And I'd like to see that there would be a significant engagement with the sensible recommendations that that particular uh, review did. So there are lessons in that to be Which learned. Which particular ones do you think? Well, I'm not going to start to say what I think we should do in Ireland. I think that there should be a discussion about it. And as I said, just I don't want to become the hurler on the ditch. 
Um, but um, you have the relevant experience. I you do. were the key person. And I'm keen to make that experience available in the things that I'm going to be involved in the future. You know that I had an ambition to do that in the academic sector. That ambition has not gone away. The interest has not gone away in terms of the issues that I was interested in. And that's why I relish the work that I'm doing with the WHO in a number of different settings and also with University College Dublin and okay, so on. But I've got to ask you to look a little bit back. And sure. Are there things that you did, and I want to just start with COVID, sure. that you now subsequently regret? Well, like there are lessons to be learned for sure. And like in terms of a number of areas, like if we apply the lesson, sorry, if we apply the knowledge we now have to the decisions we were made, perhaps we would do some things a little bit differently. But like the key thing is that you can only operate on the information that you have at, at, at the time. We tried it with the best uh, uh, assessment of the evidence as it was, with the guidance that was coming from the international bodies to make the best decisions at a point in time and also not to become paralysed by indecision. Because I think, and you'll have heard Mike Ryan memorably saying this, he can say it much better than I can say it, uh, uh, to not let the perfect, as it were, become the enemy of the good. We needed to make decisions in real time to try to protect people. And the evidence that's available in terms of things like excess mortality or ups, uptake rates in terms of immunisation or hospitalisation rates and any other measures that you look at show that although Europe was the epicentre of this infection for most of the pandemic, Ireland did comparatively well compared to almost every other country, particularly when we look at the, the neighbouring countries in Europe, had a much, much more challenging experience with COVID than we did. And that was because I think that in the main, we, we didn't make every, we, we didn't get everything bang on perfectly so right. Who That's not what we were trying to, to Yeah, we weren't trying to do that. Do you think that people were expecting that? No, we don't. I don't. But what people were expecting is that we'd be truthful, we'd be honest, we'd be open, and we set about trying to do that. So we spoke to people, we, we gave them whatever information that we had. We told them when we were uncertain. And we showed that we were trying to address the uncertainties that we had. We also thought it was important to show and explain to people how we made the decisions, how the advice that we were formulating and giving to government or giving to them as ordinary everyday citizens to incorporate into their everyday lives, how we came up with that guidance and advice. And that gave people agency. And I think that was one of the key reasons why in this country we did maintain a high degree of trust in the, in the advice that was being given. And we had really good solidarity because from the, the top of the political system right down to every corner of society. People were on board with one single national effort. And I think you'll agree that was different to a lot of other countries. We saw examples in other countries where there was fragmentation, where there wasn't alignment between the political system and what the good science was saying. In this country, we were fortunate enough that we had that. And I think that was the key reason why Ireland did comparatively well. There were significant wobbles, though, and you do refer to this in your book, in particular around the time coming into what became known as the significant Christmas of 2020. In retrospect, if, even if the government had not decided to reopen the pubs and restaurants, is it not possible that everyone would have gathered in private homes over Christmas anyway, that there would have been house parties and the like, that the infection would have spread even if there had been a greater shutdown than actually took place? Look, my own personal belief is that like in this country and probably similar in many other countries, but certainly in this country, you know, if the pubs and restaurants are open, people will take a cue from that. I think the majority of people, look, and we did see examples over the course of the pandemic where, you know, it was possible to go and get a pint, uh, uh, you know, uh, if, if you were prepared to have your nine euro meal. But the majority of people didn't do that. The majority of people didn't go and stay in a hotel because the bar was open there just so they could have a few drinks. But a few guys did that. But the key thing from our point of view as public health people was the majority listened to the advice and followed the advice. And that's one of the reasons why we did well. And... Are you satisfied that the vaccines were the right thing to do? Because there's still a minority, and it's a small minority who say they were experimental and that they have actually 
themselves contributed to deaths that would not have taken place. I am absolutely satisfied. And Why I'm, are you so and, satisfied? And I'm happy because the science and the evidence, both in terms of the impact of those vaccines uh, uh, and also the, the public health measures about the population benefit is, is unquestionably in support of the value of those vaccines. And I'm also happy that that small minority that you talk about there that does articulate that view is a comparatively small component in this country. There are other countries that have a very significant challenge. If you go to Eastern Europe, for example, there are many countries where there's widespread uh, um, belief, if you like, in some of these kinds of views where, the, where if you like, anti-vaccination views are very prevalent. That's not the case in this country, thankfully. But we're not complacent there will have to be continuing measures to try to address and to explain to people and, and to try to continue to promote trust and belief in science. But I'm absolutely satisfied that the vaccinations had a, a, an absolutely fantastic effect in protecting population. And what about mask wearing? And mask wearing was a key part of the strategy as well. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy, if you like, around those. And the evidence with some of these things isn't always clear cut. There are fine judgments. So you're looking, first of all, at what the evidence says and second of all, what the advice, if you like, of international bodies uh, will be. So what does the WHO say? What does the ECDC say? We've incorporated mask wearing for, for quite a long period of time in different settings. And the advice and guidance, of course, has changed on that, depending on what the assessment of risk is at a point in time. Uh, but it is important, just like any other measure, that masks are worn in the right way. I mean, it is possible if you don't wear a mask in the right way that it can increase risks. So it's just like any other medical measure that a doctor is going to recommend for you, whether it's a tablet or whether it's some other form of treatment, you have to adhere to it and use it in the right way for it to give you the benefit that's, 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 that's hoped for. But in retrospect, particularly when you were writing your book, We Need to Talk, did you experience any doubts about things that you had done? Did you end up feeling, God, I wish I'd done that differently? Well, like... If you if you apply knowledge and evidence as we have it now, there's some things like the role, for example, of, 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 of asymptomatic transmission. We understand now much better than we did at the time that some of the decisions were made. So it's easy to say, well, if you we knew that then, we would have done something differently. That's not the key issue. I mean, the key question for us into the future will be, how do we build better resilience into how we protect the population for pandemics. And this isn't just a question for Ireland. I mean, one of the examples that I'll offer for you is that we had, and you'll remember this, I'm sure, we had to close significant health services, social services, because we were redeploying nurses, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, speech and language therapists, and many other essential staff to do vaccination clinics, to do uh, swabbing, contact tracing, things like that. I think in the future we're going to have to find some way of having a capacity to do those relatively straightforward tasks, to, to deliver a vaccine, to conduct co basic contact tracing, basic infection prevention control, swabbing, and so on, and have a means of delivering that in large volume, at the kinds of volumes that this pandemic required, we had to do huge volumes in very short spaces of time without at the same time disrupting the operation of the health services. Because one of the key ways that we protect the health of a population is that we protect the integrity and the health of the workforce in the health system. That helps to protect public health. Before the pandemic struck, there have been many people talking for years about the potential for a flu epidemic like it happened in 1918. Hasn't gone were, away. Well, that's what I was just about to ask you, because maybe people think what happened with COVID was a once in a lifetime experience and we're never going to face anything like again. It'll be a century out. What would your feeling be about that? Uh, I don't want to sort of prophesize doom, but we have to remain prepared for the possibility that as the world is increasing in population and more globalisation, many of the factors that can predispose to the occurrence of these kinds of infections have either have either progressed 
or haven't gone away. And the risk, as you've pointed out there, of avian flu, we've more and more avian flu within the bird population. The opportunities, if you like, for, for the kind of uh, mutation to occur to allow that particular virus to, to learn how to pass from human to human, which it hasn't yet done. That's the key thing. It can pass from birds to humans and from birds to birds. It hasn't learned how to, to, to pass from, from human to human. If that is to happen... Uh, we would have a very significant challenge in, in relation to avian flu because it is a very severe form of influenza. And that risk, as you rightly say, Matt, has not, has not gone away. I want to go back to the cervical cancer scandal because this is something that you were very much associated with and you do address it in part in your book, We Need to Talk, because the Gabriel Scully report was quite damning of the systems that were in place. It wasn't just a question of a failure to inform women of the look-back audit. It went further than that. He said that the cervical check programme ran a really botched audit. It didn't have proper quality assurance of the laboratories in the United States. Slides were sent to labs all over the place that cervical check had no idea about that didn't meet the required quality standards. And he also said separately on another occasion the system for dealing with medical errors in Ireland is not for fit for purpose and requires far-reaching reform. How much regret do you have about what happened in relation to the cervical check scandal? Well, there isn't a person in the country who's involved in the health service who doesn't have regret over what happened and the scale of it. Uh, and I wouldn't dispute what Gabriel has said. He, he produced a really good report. You may or may not be aware that Gabriel and his involvement in this was something that I instigated because I knew Gabriel. He was a deputy chief medical officer in the UK system, although he's from the north of Ireland. And I was the person who recommended him to the minister at the time. And that's how he came to be appointed. I know him very well. He did a really good piece of work. And not only did he complete that work, he stayed the course of trying to oversee the implementation of the findings. And yes, there were significant weaknesses. But crucially, what we also did alongside that, there was a Royal College of Obstetrician's review of all of the slides, which showed that the level of error discordance that in our programme was in keeping with programmes elsewhere. So in other words, our programme in terms of the actual reporting of discordance was no different to programmes of what you would expect from a high standard programme anywhere else. And so we're able to say, like in spite of the fact that the programme began in probably not the best of circumstances, because it started in 2008, 2009, we had very little money in the country, so we were taking significant amounts of funding out of the health service at the time and out of other essential public services. Mary Harney found the money for that programme to get started on the advice of Gráinne Flannelly, who, who was the clinical director of the programme when the cervical check issue arose. Uh, she had come back from the UK as a young gynaecologist, really concerned to see young Irish women, mothers of young children with stage 3 and stage 4 cervical cancer, which was preventable and she really wasn't seeing in those kinds of numbers in the UK. That was really incredibly, if you like, impactful in terms of the decision to to uh, resource the programme to begin with. But it wasn't set up in the fairest of, if you like, economic circumstances. And yet uh, it, it introduced significant quality assurance programmes which placed it towards the upper level of organised screening programmes around Europe. And there have been published reports that have demonstrated that. But clearly, as you rightly say, there were significant issues and the Gabriel Scali report was a good report that put the screening programme on a track where it now is a very high-performing programme. Its screening methodology is using a much better test. The test that we used to screen with exclusively was the pap smear. Everybody knows that it's not a high-quality test. It does have flaws. But the flaws in this country were no greater in terms of their occurrence than elsewhere. So we so, now. Sorry, what are you saying is that the the procedures could not have been perfect. They could not have detected every precancerous cell. So what happens is that with a pap smear, you you say to a woman that if you participate in this program at intervals, three years or five years, depending on your age, 
and your smear is is done appropriately or properly, it is read in a, in a lab which is accredited that over the course of your lifetime, the risk of you developing cervical cancer can be significantly reduced. And our programme was performing to the standards that allowed us to say that that programme was impacting the incidence of, first of all, because it prevents the cancer. It's, it's not diagnosing the cancer after the fact. It prevents the cancer uh, and leading to a reduction in mortality from cervical cancer. And the position we now find ourselves in, we have a much more reliable test, thankfully, which it tests for the virus that we now know causes um, uh, cervical cancer, which is HPV. So we have HPV screening. That doesn't depend on somebody looking down a a laboratory microscope to make the diagnosis. And we now have HPV immunisation in in, in place. So it's the only cancer where we have two completely different prevention methods. One... uh, a vaccine to stop you getting the infection to a screening test to pick up the infection. And we're on the way to eliminating cervical cancer. And that's the only cancer we can say that about. So that's really, really good news for women. But there were 221 families left without women who died as a result. That's not true, Matt. Those 221 women didn't die. Many of them are still alive. But they were affected by this. And many of them, particularly those women who died, ended up fighting the state Legally. Now, I know that's not your responsibility. No. And that and was a different arm of the nor, state that decided Nor would that. I question their right and entitlement to do so. But we do have a level of legal litigation in respect of the screening programme, which is out of kilter, substantially so, with, with every other programme that runs organised screening programmes. That is a fact. And what's your view on that then, if it's out of culture? Well, all of those cases will have to be addressed through the court system, and I'm not going to question like, the outcome of any of those individual cases. But... A question arises in my mind as to how we can have such a high level of litigation in the context of a programme that was performing in the, in, in, in the way that it was performing. We have had that and the WHO, you may be aware, produced a report earlier this year that produced and they raised, if you like, a serious concern about the viability of the programme in this country and the potential effect reputationally on other programmes of such a level of litigation that it described as being out of kilter okay. with, with other countries. To finish... How was this book for you? Because the book was very deeply personal as well, writing about the death of your wife yes. during this whole time. Yes. How have you recovered from that? Well, I was writing not just about the, her death, but about the diagnosis and the delay in her diagnosis. That was the substantial motivation for writing the book. We haven't had much of an opportunity mm. to talk about those aspects. That was my motivation. And then to use that as the opportunity for me to highlight some of those issues for individuals. Because, first of all, to show that, look, a delay in diagnosis, that happened to us. Uh, there were perhaps understandable reasons why it might have occurred, but this is something that happens and can happen to everybody. We must be aware, each one of us, and questioning, not in, not in a, you know, in a negative way, but sort of being aware that it is appropriate to ask questions of your doctors. I have to live with the fact that, for example, we were reassured on two separate occasions uh, about the diagnosis uh, or, or, or lack of a diagnosis for my wife when it's clear that there was something much more serious going on in retrospect. Um, and my wife was very, very upset about that because we don't believe that necessarily Emer's death could have been prevented. We know that, that that simply wouldn't have been the case because of the nature of the diagnosis. But we do believe that her clinical course could have been significantly changed. She experienced very, very substantial pain because she presented quite late as a consequence. So that's just one of the issues. And the other thing that I wanted to highlight was uh, towards the end of her life, uh, when she was having substantial radiotherapy and chemotherapy, look, it was clear to us that a question was arising about, is this really helping? And she was having significant side effects from the radiotherapy and from the chemotherapy. And she was in the hospice in late 2020 in Harl's Cross. And we precipitated that discussion with the medical team. We ha- I guess we had the knowledge in the first instance to know it's important to do that. But we had the courage to do it and she had the courage to do it 
to raise the question with the medical team. And we ultimately decided to step back from treatment. And she came home. Uh, she was not in great shape when she came home. I have to be honest, she had to be carried into the house by the ambulance team. But within a short period of time of stopping all the medication, she actually paradoxically improved. And as a result, we had, as a family, a Christmas uh, together that we might not have had. Now, things did progress then in the early days of February. And as we know, she died on the 19th of February 2021. But just highlighting the importance of asking your medical team, like, what's the plan? What's, you know, what's the objective? Is it just going from week to week with a given set of treatment? Or, you know, so we, we asked that question uh, because we felt, as, we, as I say, that the, 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 the accumulation of treatment uh, was having a lot of side effects and perhaps was not bringing a lot of benefit. The other thing, uh, if I may, that I, we, I wanted to highlight is the benefit that came for us from using the Think Ahead materials at the Hospice Foundation, and I'm now on the board of the Hospice Foundation, a series of really practical guides and information for families to find themselves in these situations that nobody wants to be in, to think ahead about those kinds of issues and to not wait until that last minute for an ICU conversation or a conversation to take place in the hospice and to start to plan out those things that we don't want to have to think about. But life happens. Things about like where you want to be buried, how you want to be buried, even basic uh, everyday things like bank account numbers and Netflix passwords. All of these have to be thought about. Uh, and the Think Ahead materials, we use them. We got enormous benefit from them. So I'd really be encouraging people. They're on the website of the Hospice Foundation. They're widely available. They're really, really helpful to people. Uh, and, and to use them just as you're setting about writing your will or maybe preparing things like power of attorney, think about some of those kinds of things. So those kinds of experiences that we had as a family, I wanted to share, Emer wanted to share, and that was the main motivation for writing the book. Dr. Tony Holohan, thank you for coming in to talk to us about We Need to Talk. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today.